I'm Aaron Hinkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. My name is Kate Jakuda, and my question was about Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Why is Baltimore City an independent city instead of being part of a larger county? And is it possible that Baltimore City and Baltimore County could ever join together in the future? Kate, what's your uh, interest in this question? So I've lived in the Baltimore area my whole life. I live in the city now, but I grew up in Towson. And as a child, my family and I would spend a lot of time in the city. But I think because I grew up here, the idea of Baltimore being an independent city, I thought that was normal. I thought that's how all cities were. But as I got older, I came to realize that most cities are actually part of a larger county, and the Baltimore is actually very unique. I work as a case manager, and when we're talking to our clients, we always have to know what jurisdiction they live in so they know what services they qualify for. And when we talk to our clients, a lot of them don't even know what side of the city-county line they live in. But it actually makes a huge difference in terms of what kind of programs they can get, what kind of help they're eligible for. But more generally, for me, Baltimore City and County really feel like one community that's divided by some sort of artificial political boundary. First of all, the way the county's shaped. If you live in the county, you're probably closer to most parts of the city than a lot of parts of the county. But more than that, the two communities just seem so intrinsically linked. A lot of people I know that live in the city work or go to school, go to church in the county, and vice versa. So why are we separate? And could there be a future where Baltimore City and Baltimore County are one? Kate, this is a great question. You are not alone in asking this question. I've gotten this from several listeners, uh, so I'm definitely due to find an answer. Thanks, and I'll see what I can figure out for you. Thanks so much. Okay, so we're going to start our story here on Walker Avenue. This uh, house is a special house uh, that I'm about to knock the door on, and uh, we're going to find out why in just a second. Here we go. Oh, hi, doggies. There's two adorable dogs here in the living room and a lovely family of three. Thank you guys for uh, letting me into your home. First of all, tell me your dogs' names. Andy and Nala. And uh, how about our, our humans? Tell me your name. I'm Carolyn. I'm Carmen. I am Osvaldo. I just walked in the front door of your house, uh, which opens into your living room area. Tell me right now, are we in Baltimore City or Baltimore County? We are in Baltimore City right now. Let me have a tour of your first floor here. Uh, your dining room is right over on the other side of this transom. Let's walk over here right. for a second. We're going to walk through. And as we walk through the transom, we go into our dining room, and we're now in the county. The city-county line literally bisects your property. Yes, literally. <laughs> Was this presented to you guys as a selling point when you bought the house? Selling point? <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a selling point per se. Um, what was interesting about the house to us was the fact that it was zoned to the county school system. We knew it was city-county um, divided, but I think we're perhaps a little naive in terms of not knowing what that actually meant in terms of taxes, in terms of services, that kind of thing. Let me ask you what you're holding there. We, you have a blueprint of the property. What are yeah. we looking at? Yeah, yeah. This is basically the blueprint that we received when we bought the house. And so what you can see is that the line literally goes through our house. So I would say about like 40% of our house is in the city and 60% is in the county. So we do pay both city and county taxes. And but it's proportional. Even that a small portion of our house is in the city, we pay more taxes for the city 
that for the county. You guys have a front row seat to that disparity between city taxes and county taxes. County taxes are a lot lower for yes. property, aren't they? A lot. We pay like much less for a bigger portion of our house that is part of the county. And we pay, uh, I would say, almost like twice uh, of taxes for a smaller portion of the house that is in the city side. In terms of services, pretty much everything is city because the front of our house is on the city side. So our trash is picked up and recycling is picked up by the city. Our water bill is city, which we learned later is a lot more expensive than the counties. And we kind of wish that our water was on the, the county side because it's a lot more expensive. And we vote. We vote in the city as well. What do you know about how the city-county line came to be? I have absolutely no idea, to tell you the truth. There's a simple explanation for that and a more complicated explanation. Here's the simple one. This is Matthew Crenson. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, and his most recent book is called Baltimore, A Political History. In 1851, uh, the state of Maryland adopted a new constitution under which Baltimore City and Baltimore County were placed in two separate judicial districts, which meant that they had to have two separate court systems with their own courthouses, jails, and so on. That's the simple version of the story. The more complicated version of the story begins with the formation of Baltimore Town in 1729. 1729 is when Baltimore first established its identity as being distinct from Baltimore County, even though the town government had virtually zero authority at that time. Fast forward to 1796, the state legislature granted Baltimore a municipal charter, and that gave Baltimore its own city council, but the city still had very little power compared to the county government. The real separation starts in 1826. At that time, there was a body called the Levy Court, made up of 11 uh, justices of the peace. And this Levy Court had huge powers over both Baltimore County and Baltimore City. They controlled the budgeting and taxation and expenditures for both places. In addition to being responsible for finances, uh, the courts were also responsible for uh, maintaining streets and bridges, for overseeing the poor in the county almshouse. And it wasn't until 1826 that this levy court was abolished. That's when the court's powers were divided into two distinct jurisdictions, one in the county and one in the city. So now we're seeing here the first step toward a real separation, at least in financial matters. Things coasted along until 1850, when the state legislature authorized the creation of a commission in Baltimore County to arrange for the separation of the county for the city. What seems to have precipitated this move was the founding in 1850 of Baltimore County's first newspaper, the Baltimore County Advocate, whose principal editorial cause was separation from Baltimore City. So now you've got this county newspaper banging the drum for separation from the city. And keep in mind, at this point, 1850, Baltimore City had a population of about 150,000. Huge compared to the county, which was really rural at the time. And Baltimore City, like other growing cities of the era, was experiencing its share of city problems like crime and disorder. In fact, the 
Baltimore County advocate pointed to those kinds of urban phenomena as reasons for separation from Baltimore City. The county had no incorporated towns, and it was dealing with this urban center that at the time was the most rapidly growing city in the United States. So I think that probably drove a lot of the sentiment for separation on both sides of the line. Uh, the fact that they no longer belong to the same kind of community. Uh, they were two different places. And that brings us back to where Professor Krenson started with the simple answer, the Constitutional Convention of 1851. And it was that Constitutional Convention responding to uh, sentiment for separation in Baltimore County that decided to separate uh, Baltimore City from Baltimore County. And uh, it meant that each of those jurisdictions had to build their own courthouse their own poorhouse, their own jail. Uh, And that is when the separation uh, was complete. Uh, Sort of. Even though at this point Baltimore City and County were now two separate entities, the city continued to grow for the next 60 years by annexing parts of the county, which it was permitted to do by the state legislature. The city annexed neighborhoods like Highlandtown and Hamden and Woodbury and Lake Walker, where the family lives who we visited at the beginning of this story. Baltimore grew in this way up until 1918. That's when it reached its current borders that we recognize today. Could it have grown more? Would it have grown more? Should it have grown more? We'll never know. Because these questions were rendered effectively null and void by the passage of a seemingly innocuous public referendum that was buried in the Maryland election ballot of 1948. We'll have more on that in a moment. I'm going to turn things over now to Ron Cassie. Ron is senior editor and political reporter at Baltimore Magazine. He's going to talk about this referendum that was put on the ballot at the behest of the Democratic Party machine in Baltimore County in 1948. It's important to remember to the context of the 1948 election. It's Dewey versus Truman. There's 22 other referendums on the ballot, as we all see when we go to the polls. Maybe we know, understand a couple of them going in. Uh, One of the big referendums was funding for Memorial Stadium. So this is really overshadowed. And it passes, you know, by Baltimore City residents vote overwhelmingly against it. The rest of the state's kind of meh. And then Baltimore County, there's a 93% turnout. And those county residents who turned out in such great numbers, they voted 6 to 1 in favor of the referendum. So... What is this referendum exactly, and what does it say that's going to end up having such profound repercussions for the city? What it says, basically, what the referendum says is that no other property can be annexed unless the people who live there agree to it. So Baltimore City can't annex Catonsville or Dundalk or or what have you unless the people there agree. And it seems pretty innocuous, but nobody at that point is going to agree to be annexed, and, and, and that's you know still to this day the case. So the question here is, what exactly compelled Baltimore County to drop this legislative iron wall around the city in 1948? Cassie says you just have to look at what was happening with cars and suburbs after the Second World War. All of a sudden, the county was where the money was. So the automobile makes this possible. The construction of the suburbs and the automobile after World War II after this divorce is what brings the great wealth to Baltimore County. And it was very discriminatory towards blacks in the city. The percentage of blacks begins to climb in the city proportionately. 
as white residents are, are, are fleeing with the automobile and because there's racially discriminatory housing policies in Baltimore County at this time, I mean, which are still trying to be rectified. So that's where this great you know, divide takes place. And you know, there's been irreconcilable differences ever since. In the year when that referendum passed, 1948, Baltimore was the fifth largest city in the U.S. Just two years later, in 1950, the city reached its peak population, about 950,000. But then, its population started to shrink, and it has been ever since. Today, Baltimore's got fewer than 600,000 residents. Meanwhile, the county grew by 80% in the first few decades after the referendum, and today, it's got more than 900,000 people. In short, it's ended up much bigger and much richer than the city. My name is Don Hutchinson. I was the county executive in Baltimore County from 1978 to 1986. Don Hutchinson has been in politics a long time. His colleagues call him the class historian. And at this point, he's part of Maryland's political history himself. In 1967, and for me, having been a part of what I'm going to, what I'm going to talk about, it seems like yesterday. It, now it's, of course, 50-plus years away. But in 1967... Maryland had a constitutional convention to rewrite the state constitution. I was the youngest member of that. Uh, Our product, the constitution that we took to the voters, included a broad section of methods to create regional governments. What's important here about what Mr. Hutchinson is saying is that there was a quorum of political leaders at this point in history who were looking back at these old political decisions that had been made, and they were saying, listen, Our region looks nothing like it did back in 1851 when the city and the county split. And maybe we ought to think about rebuilding some of these old bridges that we burned so long ago. This new state constitution they proposed would rejoin the city and county under a regional government that could streamline everything from water policy to tax policy. All kinds of powers that were going to be created for these regional governments if the local governments were willing to create them. When the voters went to the polls... Uh, and voted against that new constitution, uh, the primary, one of the primary reasons for its defeat was the possibility of the creation of regional governments. From that moment, the state legislature has refused to address, not, not that anybody's asked it to. I, you know, I shouldn't say, you know, it says refuse. Generally, it means somebody's had to ask you. But the G- General Assembly has generally not addressed how to create uh, organized regional government. Mr. Hutchinson says today the city and the county are locked into this long ingrained mindset of competition instead of cooperation. And it's just like a historical force of habit. The individual leaders always seem to get along just fine. I got along with Mayor Schaefer very well. He was mayor while I was county uh, county executive. We got along very well. We had joint department head meetings. Uh, we had joint agreements on fire protection, on police protection. But making the hard political decisions, how do you deal with education, how do you deal with money, and how do you deal with housing, they were the issues that you didn't talk about because you kind of knew that they weren't going to change. The voters weren't going to change. The legislators weren't going to allow you to change it. Is there any conceivable scenario in which Baltimore City and County could reconsolidate or is it just politically impossible at this point to undo the situation and to even conceive of it? The answer is no. 
not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime, not anybody that's listening in their lifetime, uh, will there be a reconsolidation of Baltimore City and Baltimore County. But there are ways to address the individual issues. They're not addressed because nobody asked for them to be addressed. Nobody asked for them to be addressed. Again, we're back to this idea of the inertia that's resulted from living under laws that have cobwebs on them. But let's play the what-if game for a minute. What if the city and the county hadn't split back in 1851? And what if the Question 5 referendum in 1948 hadn't sealed the borders around Baltimore? How big would Baltimore have gotten? What might the city look like today? Ron Cassie says there are plenty of other cities that illustrate what could have been. When we think of elastic cities, cities that have continued to expand their footprint, um, you know, Charlotte, Jacksonville, you know, famously, which beat out Baltimore in 1993 originally for a new NFL franchise, Raleigh, Indianapolis, uh, Nashville, Austin, Houston, Columbus, Madison, Albuquerque, all grew between 250 and 2,000 percent from 1950 to 1990. Jacksonville, if you added all of Baltimore City and all of Baltimore County, I mean, all the way up to the Pennsylvania line, Hartford County, it would be that Baltimore City would be the size geographically of Jacksonville today. I think it would probably be a lot like Indianapolis and Miami. Here's Professor Matthew Crenson again. There would probably be an overall commission covering the metropolitan area and dealing with metropolitan problems like water, for example, the one that seems to have surfaced in a big way recently. Also, a variety of other issues like traffic, roads, planning for the development of new housing. All of that would be decided jointly by Baltimore City and Baltimore County, and a lot of the anxiety that grips uh, residents of both areas when things seem to come together would probably not exist. For example, the back in years ago when some political candidates sowed fear among the residents of Baltimore County by arguing that uh, public housing from Baltimore City was going to move into Baltimore County. That kind of thing wouldn't have happened. It's easy to daydream about an alternate present where Baltimore City and county cooperate better, but Ron Cassie says it is just that, a daydream. However, he says that with some creative thinking and bold action, we might be able to at least start to chip away at the old wall. Anybody who lives in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, knows we're essentially one place, right? We've all lived or worked or gone to school or have family in both places. We don't even know exactly when we're leaving the city and the county sometimes, right? It changes from one side of the street to the next. So we know that we're essentially one place with an arbitrary dividing line. And I think you have to look at that as a starting point. The starting point of a long uphill journey with the headwinds of history in our faces. And the kicker is it's a journey that wouldn't have needed to be taken but for a series of unfortunate laws made by people who, of course, couldn't predict the future. Professor Crenson says there's a moral in this story, if we're willing to hear it. Maybe the lesson is don't make decisions, don't enact laws that foreclose the future. Leave some options open. So, for example, in 1948, they might have allowed for several different ways of handling annexation instead of just uh, requiring a majority of the people in the area to be annexed. They could have given the state legislature some authority here, as the legislature had done many occasions in the past. 
they could have created a commission like the, the Metropolitan Council with some authority to come up with a scheme for consolidation and then propose it again to the electorate so that it becomes a live issue that gets, even if it doesn't pass right away, it gets people thinking about the possibility. Back on Walker Avenue in our house that sits right on top of the city-county line, that possibility sounds pretty good to Carolyn Barker Valena. I mean, I think it's a great idea, honestly, because right now we literally are straddling the two. And the reality is that we're benefiting from both. And I think that's true across the city and across the county. I mean, just thinking about taxes, as we were talking about before, to me, I don't really understand why we wouldn't just be considered sort of one unit between the county and the city because we're really all using the same resources, even the water. I mean, we're all using the same reservoir. (laughs) So why are we paying different amounts um, for our water bills? We're using the same streets. Yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense to combine the two. On that note, we're going to turn back now to Kate Jakuda, who asked the question and got this week's story rolling in the first place. Kate... We've covered a couple of centuries of Maryland political history. We've gotten a lesson in how some very old political decisions have led us down a path that may be hard to find our way back from. What are you left thinking here at the end of this episode? It's interesting to think about how the boundaries used to be a lot more fluid. And I kind of knew that I've driven around the city, and especially when I'm with my mom, she'll point out like, oh, this used to be the boundary between the city and county. But it's interesting to hear how that ended. I think they said it was in 1948. Um, And now the boundaries are very strict. And it seems like, from what your speaker said, it has a lot to do with race and different discriminatory policies, sort of making sure to keep the county whiter and all the white flight to the county from the city. Which I guess doesn't surprise me because when you, I feel like when you start to ask why things are the way they are in Baltimore, a lot of it has to do with uh, systemic racism and things like that. And I think there is a lot of anti-city sentiment in the county, but... I do agree with the woman whose house is divided that they really are one community. And I think that we are all sharing the same resources. We, We really are not two separate communities. So I think that I hope that there is a future where people can kind of come around that idea of community and really realize that we need to come together to solve some of the problems that affect people in the city and county and that a lot of these issues don't stop at the border. Kate, I want to thank you for uh, an excellent question. This was some uh, good food for thought. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in Baltimore. Got a question of your own? You can put me to work at wypr.org slash curiosity. And where we go next is up to you. And uh, hey, if you like the show, do me a favor and drop a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on. Just a line or two. Your words really do help other curious listeners find out about the show. Appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening. Be in touch. And we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture, online at thepeelcenter.org.